0: All right, so we're going to be looking tonight at a passage in Luke chapter 19. Uh, My name is Kevin Twitt, and I'm the RUF campus minister here now going on 21 years, which is crazy. And um, we are looking this semester at the parables of Jesus. And as they mentioned, I did put last week's uh, recording up on the RUF, Belmont RUF podcast. Uh, I will do the same with this one. Uh, Tonight we're going to look at the parable, the talents. And I think this is an off misunderstood parable. There are actually two versions of it. There's one parable of the talents in the Gospel of Matthew. There's one with some significant differences here in the Gospel of Luke. I actually think that they are not two versions of the same parable. I think Jesus, like a lot of traveling preachers even today, told similar stories over and over and over again. No reason to think that he didn't do that. Um, I would think it would be crazy to think that the only things he ever said are the things that we actually have recorded in the four Gospels. matter of fact, the Gospel of John at the very end says Jesus did so many other things and said so many other things that not all the books in the world could contain them. Um, So Jesus said lots of different things. We're going to look particularly at the story in the Gospel of Luke, particularly because it comes in a very interesting place, and the context is really helpful in understanding this parable. I think it's difficult for us modern Western people to see this parable as it was originally heard by the people who were following Jesus. It, it's easy when we read a parable that talks about investing and making a profit and interest and all that kind of stuff to sort of bring a context of Western capitalism. As well, every one of you here is, is somewhat addictive to being a productive person. You wouldn't be at Belmont if you hadn't figured out that game, at least to some extent. The problem is we bring that way of being, that habitual way of being, that the way to be, to be in the world is to be successful, to make the most with everything I have. It's almost like you feel guilty if you don't make the most of who you are. You are your own self-improvement project. And there's something in the air you breathe being students in this point in our time in our history, that makes you feel like that is what you owe to God and to reality and to the cosmos. So when you come to a parable like this, and probably you've, maybe if you've grown up in church, you've heard some bad sermons on this passage, uh, you think of this parable as, oh man, I've got to work hard for Jesus and make the most of the little bit of time that we have. And I'm going to challenge that typical understanding because I don't think it's what anybody in Jesus' day would have thought about this parable. And I certainly think that when you see it in its context in the Gospel of Luke, that it actually is pointing to a very different thing. It's pointing to how do we live in the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet is a very important concept if you want to understand Christianity. Jesus regularly talks about how... The kingdom has come if he, the king, is here. Now, the Jews were looking for a kingdom. What it meant for the kingdom to come was for everything to be made right. It started out in the Garden of Eden. The Bible story starts out in the Garden of Eden with God, the king, making this beautiful creation and creating not only a garden, but a whole cosmos of God-glorifying potential. And he put Adam and Eve King Adam and Queen Eve in this garden and encouraged them to work to bring about all the God-glorifying potential that he'd built into his creation. And things went awry, and the language of kingdom is the best way to understand what went awry, because Adam and Eve rebelled against God and his kingdom, and instead allied themselves with what C.S. Lewis calls so well, the parasite kingdom of Satan a kingdom that doesn't create anything, a kingdom that seeks to twist things and put them to other purposes. And the, really, the whole story of the Bible is how God is not going to let that alliance that Adam and Eve, mankind, the crown of creation, that alliance that they've made with the kingdom of Satan, God says, no, I won't let it stand. And he gives an indication of that in Genesis 3 when he says, I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman And the serpent. Enmity. In other words, Adam and Eve had said, we will have peace with Satan and warfare with God. And God says, I'm not going to let that stand. I'm going to put warfare where you've tried to put peace. And I'm going to make peace where you have betrayed me and created treason. And the rest of the Bible is the story of how is God going to bring this to pass? Particularly when there's a hostile world full of people who want to squash the seed line of the Messiah stopped this promise from coming true. And not only that, they're not only our external enemies, like the Philistines and the Romans and the Babylonians and the Persians, but there, are, there, there, there is the unfaithfulness of God's people themselves basically taunting God and saying, we don't want you in your ways. We still want our own kingdom. We still want our own ways. The Jews were hoping for a kingdom, what they called shalom, for all things to be made right and beautiful. And they thought when Jesus came, announcing this kingdom, that the day had finally come. And for them, for the Jews living in the first century, the first thing that the kingdom coming meant was the Romans would be dealt with. I hope you understand, maybe you don't, but in the first century, Israel was occupied by the Romans. The Romans were oppressing the Jewish people, and they longed for the kingdom to come. And what they meant by that, first and foremost, was the Roman oppression would end. And that's the context into which Jesus speaks this parable. It's actually near the end of the Gospel of Luke. The very next story in the Gospel of Luke is the story about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, what we call the triumphal entry, when all the people welcomed him with palm branches saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, this is the king, and he's come to Jerusalem, and now we're going to see the Romans dealt with. That's the very next story. So as Jesus tells this parable, the excitement of what's about to happen is in the air, The Gospel of Luke has said, even way back, it was around chapter 15 or 16, that once the disciples understood that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one, it says then that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, where he was going to die. Luke repeats that over and over and over again, yet the disciples don't get it. They think, yes, we're going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up on a hill. You head up to Jerusalem. They know that's where we're going. The Passover feast is coming. We're going to go up to Jerusalem. We're going to celebrate the Passover. The prophet of Amos had a prophecy that made it seem like the Passover was the time when the Messianic kingdom would be inaugurated. Here it comes. And that's where we get to here in Luke 19. So follow with me. We're going to pick up at verse 11. Verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. Like I said, there are some Bibles at the end of the rows if you need one. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he, meaning Jesus, was near to Jerusalem, and because they, meaning the disciples, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Luke wants to make sure we understand the context. They're getting close to Jerusalem and the disciples believe that the kingdom is about to appear immediately. So Jesus tells them this parable, verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. A mina is about a hundred days' wages. So he gave them a lot of money. And he said to them, engage in business until I come, until I return. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him to that far country saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord... Your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away or hidden away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. The nobleman said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, when Jesus said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And as I said, the very next story is about the triumphal entry. Let me pray together, and then I'm going to try to unpack this parable a little bit. Lord, we do thank you. Though as we come to a story like this, part of it we like, part of it we're really bothered by. We pray, Lord, that as we spend a few minutes now tonight, that you would open our eyes to see you, the King, and what your kingdom is really about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, the context... Really matters. Jesus came into a world full of longing and expectation, and this is not a parable about being productive. And as I'm going to show you, one of the keys is what how do you translate this word that many of the translations uh, translate until I come again. But here's what I want you to understand: the Bible culture is not a context of Western capitalism, and it's not a context of post-industrial revolution efficiency where efficiency is just this almost this um, obsession. It's part of what it means to be modern people. Rather than that, the Bible focuses on faithfulness rather than productiveness. And I believe this parable really reflects that. The context of this parable shows us that Jesus is trying to correct the expectations of his people. He's not trying to tell them, well, you better work really hard. He's trying to say, you need to work in a particular way, being confident that even though I'm going away, I'm going to receive a kingdom and I'm coming back, having inherited that kingdom. Now kingdom, the language of kingdom is important for us to understand. If you want to get an understanding of Christianity, you have to come out of consumer mentality and come into kingdom mentality. And let me explain the difference In kingdom mentality, you have allegiances and loyalties. In consumer mentality, you buy things. You purchase things. You try to possess things that you think will make you better or more beautiful. In kingdom mentality, you align yourself with something. You follow something. You become allegiant to something. And the Bible regularly speaks of Christianity not as a product to be bought, not as a product that you can have that will make your life better, though I know a lot of times preachers present it that way. The Bible never says that the kingdom of God is a product that you purchase with your faith. Even worse, the Bible never says that a relationship with God is a product that you can purchase by your own attitude or by anything that you can do. No, the Bible calls us to a kingdom. And Jesus says, I am the king. Come to me. Doesn't say, buy peace. If you you come to me, if you do what I say, then you get this and your life will be better. And one of the problems with the consumer mentality, which squeezes all of us, is we're in a time and an age where we really don't ever want to put all our eggs in one basket. See, the consumer mentality is, well, I need a little of this and I need a little of that and I could have some more of that and I'm a little deficient in this area so I can go out and buy that or I can buy this. It'll hide this blemish or that uh, insufficiency. The kingdom is all or nothing. The kingdom mentality is all or nothing. And Jesus is saying, while I'm gone, what you do with your time and with your money and all the other gifts that I've given you is very revealing about your allegiances and about your view of the kingdom. Many many people have read this parable, I'm afraid, uh, as being about Jesus expecting us to do great work for him and be successful. I've even heard people talk about, you know, people like evaluating different Christians and their potential for leadership, saying, well, you know, she's a 10-minus person. She's a 10-city believer. He's like a five-city believer. It's insane. It's not what this parable is about at all. It really is about how will we live in the meantime. And that's that's where we're at, in the meantime. Now, look at how the parable starts. A nobleman went away into a far country. But the question that I think we really rarely stop to ask is, why did he go away? Why does it say? He went away to receive for himself a kingdom. Now, in the first century, this kind of stuff actually happened a lot. As a matter of fact, King Herod, who was at this point the king uh, in this area in Palestine, had went himself to Rome to talk to Caesar to see if he could be appointed king. And it had worked out well for him. He had been appointed king. So he had literally went into a far country to get a kingdom, and he got it, and he came back, and he was even now, as Jesus is telling this parable, he's the king. It didn't go as well for Herod's son. Later, after uh, Jesus had died, Herod's son went to Caesar to try to get, uh, to get a kingdom, to, get, to basically be appointed the new king. About 8,000 Jews followed him up to, to Rome and said, we don't want this guy to rule over us. And Caesar said... He's not going to rule over you. That guy didn't get the kingdom. Here's the point to understand. It was a regular thing for people that wanted a kingdom to have to go and try to get favor from more powerful people, and you weren't really sure how it was going to work out. That's what you need to understand about this parable. So when the nobleman says, here is my money, invest it in work, I'm coming back after I received my kingdom. But most people in that day, if they were careful, and you might even say smart and savvy, they would not, they would not be so reckless as to publicly identify with this person who might not come back with the kingdom. Who knew what was going to happen I know the nobleman has promised that he's going to go get a kingdom and he's going to return, but maybe it doesn't work out that way. And so you, as one of the servants, have to ask the question, am I going to publicly show my allegiance to this nobleman who promises that he's going to receive a kingdom and come back? Am I going to put all my eggs in that basket? Or am I going to play it safe? Am I going to hide it in a handkerchief? That's what it's really about. It's not about how much money can you make for the king. It is about will you publicly identify with him while he's gone. And you understand when you see the context, that's what these disciples need to understand. They don't get right now that Jesus is going to leave, but Jesus is preparing them and saying what really matters. The really crucial question is, What will you do in the meantime? How will you live in the meantime? With the good gifts that I've given you, will you publicly identify with me, no matter what the cost? Now, has God ever disappointed you? Has God ever disappointed you? See, I think that that, you have to ask that question as you come to this parable. I think actually what's, what's interesting is the way that third guy says, Lord, sir, I knew that you were a severe man. The, the translation maybe could be a little better. What he's basically saying is, I experienced you as a severe man. And the nobleman doesn't correct him, but he doesn't agree with him either. He simply reflects back to him, okay, you experienced me as a severe man. If you experienced me as a severe man, why are you pretending otherwise? Let me explain this. He says, you thought that I was a severe man. Therefore, you didn't want to risk being publicly identified with me because you were trying to hedge your bets. Well, if you thought I was such a severe man, then why didn't you put my money in the bank? Now, here's what's interesting. The Jews were forbidden by the Mosaic Law, to make interest on loans. So for a Jew to say, why didn't you put my money in the bank to make interest, is a way of saying, if you think that I'm severe and unfair, then why didn't you just go all the way and treat me that way? In other words, you're pretending that you're allied with me. Your actions show... And now your words show that you don't really like me, you don't really want me to be your king at all. And how does he know? By what he does. He doesn't publicly identify. Let me back up a sec. What's interesting about this is you have these two contrasting pictures of who the nobleman is. And remember, Jesus tells us in a context where opposition against him is rising. And there are a lot of people that want to see him dead. And it comes out in the parable, right? The people don't want the true king to be their king. And if you're going to be my disciple, you need to understand the conditions that you're going to live in. You're going to live in a culture that doesn't want me to be king. But look what he does. He gives each of them a great deal of money. A great deal of money. And I I don't think we want to pass by that too fast. Because if you're trying to understand the character of the kingdom of God, you need to understand who God is and what his character is. And Jesus regularly describes the Father as one who gives lavish gifts. Generous gifts. And that's what he does here, right? I think sometimes we read this parable and we don't stop to think about what a generous gift the gospel is. But gifts bring responsibility. And I I think it's worth asking that question. Do you see the gifts that you've been given, whether it's your life, your talent, your opportunity, your relationships, even your pain and your story, do you see it as a kingdom resource? Do you see it as a kingdom resource? In other words, do you say, Lord, what I have I want to to give to you. I want to be publicly identified with you. You've given me gifts. I don't want to hide them. Some translations say that the one guy hid his mina in a rag, in a filthy rag. I don't want to do that. I don't want to hide the things you've given me. I want to be a good steward of these things. The nobleman promises the servants that he will be successful and return as a king. And in the meantime, verse 13, it says that they are to engage in business. And most translations say until. But but here's where I want to suggest something. It's a Greek word, two uh, two letters, E-N-H-O and ho. It can mean until. It can. Uh, But it also, maybe even more literally, uh, means in which or even because. Let me, let me show you what it would do to this parable if we translate it that way. If you translate it as until, then this is a parable basically saying, you don't have much time, make as much money as you can while I'm gone, because I expect you to turn a profit. But if you translate it as be about my business while I'm gone, then it fits better with what he says when he comes back. Because what does he say? He doesn't say, you made a lot of money, awesome. He says, you've been faithful. You've identified with me. I can tell, you can tell that you have been engaged in business with my mina. Notice the way the two faithful servants see it. They say, here is your mina, and your mina produced this. You understand? They're very cognizant of the fact that this is yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything I'm about is about you and your kingdom. They're very aware that it's a gift that it's not theirs, and they've been faithful. They've been faithful, not successful. Otherwise, otherwise, the one guy would get more, you know, kind of credit than the other. Now you say, well, he gets ten cities. Yeah, but do you understand that's a responsibility, not a privilege. He doesn't own ten cities. He's given responsibility to care for those. Leadership in the Bible is always about bearing burdens. And that's what happens here. He commends them for being faithful. The focus is not on making as much money as you can because Jesus is coming back soon. The focus is on the way in which we work, working in the confidence that the master has gone and will be crowned and will come back again. Let me give you a a little illustration of the difference. Here's here's the point. What you think about the future, if you're a Christian, what you think about the future has a lot to do with the way you work in the here and now. Um, Prior to the 20th century, most Protestant missions were done in the confidence that God cared about the world, not just saving souls. This kind of parable was understood as a way of saying, we are to be about the work of the kingdom, and the work of the kingdom means that the shalom that God had created this world for is going to be realized. In other words, the early 20th century, this sort of idea began to develop that this world is a sinking ship. And people even used to say things like, well, you don't polish the brass on the Titanic. In other words, if this world is going down and it's just going to get burned up, then don't waste your time with anything other than saving souls. All that you need to be about if you're a Christian, this perspective said, was trying to preach the gospel and save souls. And it's had actually a devastating negative effect on Christianity and the view of Christianity among the world. Listen, when William Carey, um, 18th century Baptist preacher, went to India, do you know he spent years and years working on the language? He wrote books on the botany of India. He didn't just go and say, let me just hold an evangelistic rally and try to convert people. He cared about them holistically. Why? Because he knew that God's kingdom was not just about taking souls and whisking them off to the clouds forever and ever. God's kingdom was going to come down. The new heavens and the new earth were going to come down. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about the resurrection body of Christ and how that's the first fruits of the resurrection and making all things new, the very end of that chapter, Paul says... Because God is making all things new, therefore your labor in this life is not in vain. In other words, if you believe that the kingdom involved all of life and not just saving people's souls, then you worked accordingly. You cared about people's health. You cared about people's language. You cared about their culture. You cared about their stories and their art. And that's what missionaries used to do. In the 20th century, the whole perspective shifted because people began to believe all this kind of left-behind nonsense. And it is nonsense. You can talk about it over a cup of coffee if you want. I don't want to drive you away before you even figure out who RUF is. But listen, it matters because this left-behind nonsense says the only thing that matters about you is your soul and whether you've made a decision for Jesus so that you can go off to heaven someday. The Bible doesn't speak like that. The Bible says the new heavens and the new earth are going to be here and that you need to invest yourself in all areas of life because the kingdom needs to come, as Isaac Watts said so well in that hymn, Joy to the World, far as the curse is found. That's the biblical hope, and that's been the historic hope of the church. But somewhere along the line in the early 20th century, it got hijacked and turned into just about saving souls. And what I'm saying is this is a parable about the kind of work we do, The kind of work we do has everything to do with the kind of kingdom we expect and the kind of king we think Jesus is. And Jesus is a king who cares about more than your souls. He cares about everything. He cares about everything he's made. And he's going to make all things new. That means that for you to be loyal to his kingdom, there's all kinds of work to do. You don't have to be a theology major. You don't have to do Christian music. All of life, has been broken and twisted by sin coming into the world. The curse has affected everything. And the kingdom will extend as far as the curse is found. And whether God's equipped you and called you to be working in medicine or publishing, journalism, all of these things are important aspects of the kingdom you know, Jeremiah told the exiles, when they were carried off into exile, when they felt like, well, if we're in the midst of a hostile culture, we can't possibly say, do anything for God. He said, no, no, settle down, marry, plant fields. You're going to be here for a while, so be about the shalom of the city. If you're a Christian, if you're loyal to King Jesus, then you need to care about the things he cares about, and he cares about everything. And he cares about the shalom being restored. And he calls you, in all of us, in all kinds of different ways to be about that as well. I hope that college for you is not just a passport to privilege. A friend of mine, Steve Garber, says that's really the critical question to ask yourself during this period of your life. Is your education a passport to privilege? Or will it be a way of equipping you to not only care about the things God cares about, but to you know dive in and work for the kingdom to come in all kinds of ways? That's what this is about. How will you be faithful, even if you may not be successful? You know, Mother Teresa, right, just got canonized, as the Roman Catholic Church understands that. I have a little different understanding of what it means to be a saint um, because the Bible calls all believers saints regularly. But she still did some amazing things for God, didn't she? And one of my favorite quotes from her is somebody asked her, you know, like, it's just you and, like, this handful of, of nuns here in Calcutta. How do you ever expect to make a difference in the poverty and the suffering here in Calcutta? And she said... God doesn't call us to be successful, but to be faithful. I think sometimes we think the kingdom comes only if we see all of the big problems fixed. I don't know. I don't know what God will call you to be about. But I know that often you'll find that you feel like you're hitting up against a brick wall. And then you'll need to understand that God isn't looking at you saying, well, you haven't been very successful. God is going to look and say, have you been faithful? Have you publicly identified yourself with me and my ways, even when it costs you. And it will cost you. I don't know what it will cost you. I know that people in the West are waking up to the fact that there are a lot of people in this world who following Jesus cost them everything. And I don't know what it will be for you 40, 50, 10, 20 years from now. But this parable will remain relevant for the rest of your life. Will you be... Faithful. Kingdoms concern issues of allegiance and loyalties. It's not enough to think Jesus is great. Will you be identified with him and his cause when enemies and opposition abound? There's a fascinating book written by a guy named Philip Jenkins. It's called This I'll just tell you the title The Lost History of Christianity The Thousand Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and How It Died how it died. God promises that his church will persevere, but he doesn't promise that the church will persevere in America. And there was a thousand-year period when there were more Christians and more churches and more bishops in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East than there were in the West. The only reason that you think of Christianity as a Western religion is that's the place where it didn't get stamped out. It wasn't because it was particularly Tuned into the West. It's just it survived there and it got crushed everywhere else. I don't know what your expectations are of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to follow Jesus, but there are no promises that your kingdom will be comfortable. But there is this promise that Jesus' kingdom will come. Jesus' kingdom will come. And what about the end of this parable? The third servant, like I said, has this distorted view. And, and I don't want you walking out of here saying, oh, that was a rousing, inspiring message. I'm going to hold on to my faith. I'm going to stay loyal to Jesus and think you can gut it out by your own willpower. I want to call your attention again to the different understandings of who the nobleman is and what his character is like. Because the only thing that enables you to persevere In allegiance to Jesus is understanding how good and gracious he is. I don't know. There's probably people in this room that have been scared into following Jesus. People love to do that, you know. It can be somewhat effective. Um, There's this amazing documentary film we watch sometimes called Hell House that that literally is about a um, church down in Texas that every year at Halloween... They basically have this haunted house that shows all the effects of sin and not following God's ways to try to scare people into the kingdom. You know, and and it's amazing, like, people, like, rush into the room to meet with counselors and pray Jesus into their life. But does it stick? It doesn't stick. Jesus is not saying, be afraid of me. Jesus is saying, I'm headed to Jerusalem. Remember this story? is told on the way to Jerusalem. What's going to happen the very next section of the Gospel of Luke? Jesus is going to say, I'm headed to Jerusalem to die. If you didn't believe that I was a gracious God who gave good gifts, look at this. The only thing that will enable you to persevere in loyalty and allegiance to the kingdom of God is when you understand that the kingdom of God The King of God, King Jesus, became a common criminal, identified with those of us who don't have the willpower to stick it out. I hope you don't read a parable like this and say, I'd be one of those people that would publicly identify with Jesus no matter what the cost, because honestly, we're just not that brave. And Jesus knew that. He says, live this way, but remember who I am. He's going to die right before them to show them that the one that we follow is not a severe man who treats us unfairly. The one that we're called to align ourselves one is one who took the most unjust sentence that was ever dealt. The one who aligned himself with us, those who had committed high treason, and said, even as he hung on a cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Following Jesus out of fear, or out of arrogance, braggadocia, willpower, will not last, but having your heart melted by seeing the king who died. That will always empower you, sustain you, and encourage you. That is the king we follow. That's the king. And it's the only way to follow him in a hostile world. It's the only thing that can truly melt our hearts And do battle against our suspicion. Because sometimes we think he is a severe man. We do sometimes, don't we? Think that God has disappointed us and doesn't care about us. And the Bible says, look at the cross. And let the cross melt your suspicion and melt your fears. This is the king. This is the king. And he will receive his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you prepare us for things we don't even need, know we need to be prepared for. It's like your disciples who think that everything's going to work out great. And soon they're going to taste crushing disappointment. And yet, even through that disappointment, they're going to come to understand that your kingdom is is secured, not by destroying the Romans, but by being put to death. And that paradox is going to begin, as C.S. Lewis said, death working backwards. And Lord, we long for your kingdom. And Lord, we would be those who would be tempted to try to take it by force, to make all things right. Lord, help us to align ourselves, not just to you and your kingdom, but even to your kingdom ways. Lord, may we have eyes that see areas where the curse has affected this world, your beautiful world, and may we follow you into those places, keeping our eyes on you, the crucified Lord, who calls us to come and die, to come and follow that your kingdom healing may come to real tangible places in this broken world. May you give us confidence that you are the king and that you are coming again and you will make all things right. And may that lead us to work with hope rather than shrink back in fear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.